0: Are live from the Empire of Lies on Oasis of Truth, anti-censorship, and free speech in the vast wasteland that is the New World Order under Joe Biden. I'm Lisa Stranahan, and this is the backstory. And of course you're with us on Truth Tuesday. Our guest co-host today is none other and the great Jason Goodman Hey Jason, are you there? I am here, Lee, thank you very much How are you doing? I'm well, how are you? I'm doing great, I'm doing great Actually, looking at an apartment in downtown Sioux Falls This afternoon, after the show nice. So, Excellent. you know, what could be better? Wonderful. Yeah. yeah, we'll talk about that maybe So let's go, let's talk about who's on the show And then have you do the boom We have the great Mark Zabata from Moscow in the first hour. And in the second hour, we're joined by my good friend and great friend of the show, immigration expert Susan Pye, to talk about the warrant for Ron DeSantis' arrest. Have you heard about that? Absolutely. That's insanity. Yeah, and we'll talk about it. It's fun. But do the boom. This is the backstory. Well done, Jason. so uh, I thought one thing i'd i talk about because I'm I, like I say, for divorce reasons, I was planning to move to d c, but I'm moving instead to downtown Sioux Falls. Uh, I've been same. living uh, uh, I've been living in kind of outskirts, I won't say suburbia, but a sort of area where stores are. and now'm moving the heart of downtown Sioux Falls, and it is a downtown. You know, yep. it's got a lot of the stuff you'd expect. But I want to talk about the idea of small cities because I think a lot of people are frightened of cities now for good reason. Yeah. I said I was moving to New York or L.A. A lot of people, in fact, one of my concerns about moving to D.C. is that I'm not quite healthy enough to walk around a city like D.C., but I really like, and you've lived in New York your basically your whole life, so you're yeah. a city person, right? Is that fair to say, yeah. Jason? Yeah, but but it is. you've lately soured on it because
1: well, crime mean, it's and everything so else is so
2: dangerous now. Yeah, I mean the problem is the governor will not allow the district attorney to enforce the law. So when the police arrest someone, they just get let out. And because the police are more likely to be prosecuted, they don't want to subject themselves to the liability. So they'd rather just stand around and do nothing at all and wait to receive their pensions. And so what's happening is this has been going on for the past two years, at least, since the start of the pandemic. And the growing problem is that we're basically cultivating, you know, kids who are like fourteen right now. We're cultivating the next generation of criminals who basically have grown up in a time where they can do whatever they want. There's no consequences.
0: But, but do you, the aspects that you like of, those, of the city, I, like is one aspect? When I was in DC, I'd never before lived in an apartment where I could walk downstairs, cross the block, and get a latte or whatever. Yeah, no, I do like I that. No. The convenience of not needing a car is appealing. To me. Right. And being able to walk at this new place, I'd be a couple blocks from this bar I like that serves good slices of yeah. pizza.
2: Yeah, uh, there you go. They,
0: right. And I, I got like three places for breakfast that are in yeah. three or four blocks.
2: Yeah, no, that's perfect.
0: So I, I'm i bringing this up to bring up, the I think the idea of small cities which don't have the safety problems of big cities, but have some of the conveniences, are are a coming trend. And you're going to see it in places like Sioux Falls. Because the trick is, how do you keep a small city like Sioux Falls from becoming either a dangerous small city or a big city? Because a lot of times people who run small cities, the city council or whoever, uh-huh. They think the idea is, well, we need to become a big city. Right. And I think that's false. I yeah. think that's a mistake on their parts. Yeah. And what they usually do, these town councils, it's logical, but it, it it's a complete contradiction to what they believe in. By the way, I'll take, Tarif's calling in. Tarif, I'll probably take their call top of the hour next hours. So you might want to call back. But, uh. What they do is they say, well, we need to be a big city. So they bring in like a big factory of some kind. Right. Out here they brought in Smithfield, a pork processor. In, oh boy, uh, didn't China buy that? In, in Twin Falls, uh, uh, I'm not sure, but in Twin Falls, wow. Idaho, where I was, Chobani built the world's largest yogurt factory. Or they'll bring in wow. a big car manufacturer, whatever. And that backfires because large-scale manufacturing like that adds a bunch of low-skilled jobs. And in order to fill those jobs, they typically bring in illegal immigrants or new refugees. Does that make sense?
2: Right. Well, we have a lot of those now. I mean, don't we need some new cities? I'm not saying to overrun yours, but it seems like there are some economically depressed areas where the real estate might be uh, purchased at a lower rate. I mean, putting tons of migrants and homeless people into hotels in New York City, we're on such a bad trajectory right now, Lee. It's amazing.
0: Yes. And and New York's problems are are different because of the problems of a big city. And I think the problems there are chiefly political and policy decisions that were made by politicos who really don't have many choices. Because it's a big, a big city's got its own momentum. But in these small cities, when they bring in a big factory like that, it ends up destroying the nature of the city. Whereas I think the thing that they yeah. should do is focus on, here's the thing about capitalism that's, that's awesome. I'm going to name two businesses and tell me which one c- can succeed in America. This is, by the way, this is a trick question, Jason, so you know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> two businesses, two businesses: the Four Seasons Hotel or Motel 6, the motel. Which one can succeed in America?
2: All of the above.
0: Right. Or if, 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 if a, a, a store for Gucci products or Walmart. Which one can yeah. succeed? All of the above. That, right, exactly. Capitalism does not mean you have to sell the cheapest, most products. In other words, yeah. you can have a store that says, we're going to go for small, a smaller customer base, but quality. Does that make sense? Yeah. Premium. Yeah. Like, I have this computer bag, and uh, it's made by a company called Waterfill Designs, and they make their bags, manufacture them, in San Francisco. Uh-huh. Now, can you yeah. imagine what it cost them extra to manufacture in San Francisco as opposed to Tijuana or wherever?
2: It's <laughs> pricier, right? Yeah, the, the tears of liberals but, in every bag. <laughs>
0: but, but I'll say this. The bags are rock solid. I bought another yeah. bag off Amazon that was much cheaper and similar style. An older shoulder bag. The strap broke on oh. it in three days. I've had this oh this one strap on Waterfield's bags. The strap is like made with paratrooper fabric.
2: So well, you see, yeah, bags- stuff like that, I go for Toomey, and it lasts for like twenty years. It's a lot of money when you right. get it at first. You just throw it down a flight of stairs and it's fine.
0: And with stuff like a computer bag, you know, running around yeah. the streets covering protests. Right. I want a solid right. bag really well. Yeah. So I think they should focus on quality manufacturing in these small cities. In a place like Sioux Falls or wherever, to avoid the problems with big city. Don't bring in a giant faceless factory that will have poor well, workers at it. Well, Make sense, Jason? There's Justin? something else
2: that you said. Yes, but there's something else that you said that's very important, that the failure in New York is due to politicos who made policy. I think the same can be said in reverse. The success there in South Dakota is because the politicians aren't doing incredibly self-destructive things to the population and to the cities and to the state. I mean, there's no reason why we can't have a district attorney who actually Enforce, you know, prosecutes criminals and creates a condition where the police can enforce the law. That would be nice. And I mean, listen, I lived in New York for 32 years and uh, it was great for 29 and a half of them.
0: And those policies are somewhat trickling down on small cities. But I'm mentioning all this because I'm going to be living downtown, right across from the town hall where the city council meets. I'm going to start covering. Uh-huh, I'm going to start to be covering local politics more. Yeah. And good. so I've been thinking about what small cities need because I don't want to just go in and complain.
2: I want to you go in and be able to ha- sit in the chair with maybe, the sign maybe, and teach
0: Biden. <laughs> No, I'm looking forward to it. But we'll talk more about that later, Jason. Okay. And let's yeah. take a short break. And the great Mark Sloboda is on the phone from Moscow. So Jason, why don't you take us out with a boom? The commercial.
2: This is the backstory.
0: are back on the backstory live from the empire of lies and in the capital of the empire of lies we're on the radio 105.5 fm am 1390 there we go go. so joining us now straight out of moscow in moscow russia the great mark zoboda hey mark how you doing
3: hey mark lee jason thanks for having me it's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the backstory
0: well it's always great to have you on mark And we appreciate your wisdom and your humor, and you're a fun guy. So let's talk about the not fun stuff first. Can you give us an update on the military situation between Russia and Ukraine?
3: Sure. Okay, so, I mean, the last time we spoke, I— Uh, We we spoke uh, about, in general, about uh, the new strategy for the Russian counteroffensive cooked up by the Pentagon, openly admitted to on CNN that they wargamed and planned out the whole thing, is to use what was Russia's weakness, its relative uh, lack of manpower, because it had self-limited it, its uh, intervention force in Ukraine to just 150,000 troops. So they're well-armed, well-trained, had lots of gear. There's still only 150,000 of them, whereas uh, the Kiev regime has force, mobilized and forcibly conscripted the entire country and has like um, four, three to four to one odds, right? They, they say they have a million men. It's not as many. Uh, so uh, they decided to attack everywhere at once to overcome uh, their own disadvantage in terms of firepower and to use their advantage in terms of manpower. And Russia simply didn't have enough troops to uh, continue their offensive in the Donbass and uh, hold all the territory that they had taken being attacked at once. Um, and I spoke about the reasons why and why I disagreed with the Kremlin for you know limiting the forces this way and what the costs of it were. But they prioritized and gave up Kharkov. They withdrew from it. Kiev basically w- drove in as the Russians were pulling out, punched a lot of air. Uh, took a lot of casualties in the process from Russian aviation and long-range artillery and declared victory. And suddenly the Western papers are, are are full of stories about Kiev winning and everything. The reality is, of course, that wherever Russians have uh, dug their heels in and said, we are going to keep this like Herr Son, their counteroffensive has failed utterly with catastrophic. side. And where Russia has uh, imposed the new Uh, Defensive lines on, on, uh, you know, the edges of the Harkov territory across the Osko River, for instance, that they decided, okay, this is where we're redrawing defensive lines they've held up. Uh so uh, right now there is basically probing reconnaissance and return to positional battles along these new defensive lines while the offensive in the Donbass against Bakhmut uh the encirclement of that city continues uh you know apace at, at its own uh you know um brutal Uh, tactics of, uh, you know, using heavy artillery to soften up fortifications first.
0: And so in in Kharkov, because you've talked before about you have some family who's Ukrainian, you know that the Ukrainian forces came in and as typical. They are torturing and murdering Russian, ethnically Russian citizens, correct? Well, I
3: mean, again, in East Ukraine, it's really tough to say who is ethnic Russian and ethnic Ukrainian a lot, who's Russian speaking. It's, it's, not, it's more about national identity, conception, and worldview. But anyone they identify as a traitor or collaborator, right? And under the new definitions of Kiev regime draconian laws, if you accept so much as food and medicine, humanitarian aid from any russians you are a collaborator so yeah they i mean they have um they they sent out telegram messages all across uh social media asking uh, the people of the towns to report any of their neighbors who were collaborators or sympathizers and there's a whole lot of petty neighborhood score settling and and going on and i mean i mean the I, I will say it, you know, that the Ukrainians own state borough of investigation, which announced the cleansing as they recaptured cities, put it best. The time of reckoning has come. That was that was the way they announced it. Right. I mean, that that's not ominous at all. You know, that, that that's perfectly normal. Right. Um, so, yeah, there is a lot of cleansing and purges going on of anyone who so much as uh, made a, a positive post or glanced at the Russians or took food from them. And that is a, a, a that is a tragedy. That is the biggest cost. I mean, it may have been militarily strategic at the time because of the limitations of this of this special military operation. But the, the limitations themselves, I, I felt were stupid, um, were self-defeating. And I said as much. Uh, I said it was a problem. And lo and behold, it appears in the last just 24 hours, it appears that Russia has made a lot of announcements that would, in effect, completely remove all the limitations of the special military operation that Russia has been tying its own hand behind its back and using less than 10 percent of its active duty military force for the last six months and still winning right overall I mean there's no question about that Uh, but um, they're about to remove those
0: and and what I was talking about the reprisals against people that they're calling collaborators is exactly nothing changing your opinion why you think you, the Ukrainian, the Zelensky regime that was put into power in 2014 under Poroshenko eventually by the US and NATO needs to be defeated. This is a bad oh, regime, right?
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And these are the type of things that you will never hear, that you will never see. The pictures of these purges of this in the Western mainstream media. They self-censor, right? The journalists on the ground, they see this, right? Because this is what the Ukrainian forces, you know, particularly these neo-Nazi battalions themselves post to their own telegram, their own social media channels about what they're doing. But the Western media won't show it to you because it, it, it it's not the narrative they're trying to sell you. But if you can... Read Ukrainian, and you can see what they themselves are posting. It is – yeah, I'm sorry. It's some real Nazi uh, uh, feces. Uh, it, it's, it's awful. It, it, is, it breaks my heart every time I go on there, and I have family all over East Ukraine. And uh, luckily, the, the family that I had in uh, Kharkov got out a few weeks before this all happened um but uh you know i, I constantly worry about all, all the family that i have there in east ukraine
0: well our best wishes to them and hope they're safe but uh i know some people freaking out a little bit about that some people who heretofore had been you know at least pretty objective about the russia ukraine conflict and they start to buy in i think to western propaganda and now this the Russia pulling out of Kharkov you you've talked about why it's bad and you thought it was bad, and you're not uncritical, but do you think people are freaking out too much the other way and and going along with with the Western narrative that this is a big game changer
3: if you're Mark? talking about some voices in the alternative media and say general yes. sentiment on social media yeah there was a lot of unrealistic panic. Believe me, I felt emotion over this, right? I've got, you know, a real, real, uh, you know, uh, change in the game there, if you wanted to say it that way. I have family there. So I felt very bad about all this. And I criticized, you know, the way that this is being conducted, the way that they have to prioritize things, not because they're losing, but, but simply because they're, they're, making a military intervention in a country of some you know 30 35 million people um, and um, the regime has mobilized and forcibly conscripted uh, hundreds of thousands they claim a million troops at this point I mean you, it, it's it's simple math right no matter how good they are how much firepower uh, you know especially when they're when these uh, opposing troops are armed and trained, and funded, and uh, got intelligence and battlefield direction and everything else uh, from from Washington. Uh, so um, I, I, I didn't panic because I knew that Russia was only fighting with one hand tied behind their back and a kid's glove on the other hand. I only questioned whether the Kremlin had the political will to recognize, for whatever reason— They limited the special military operation in the beginning, and I have a feeling it was a message to the West that their intentions in Ukraine were limited and that they were always prepared to go back to the uh, peace table on the terms they set out in the beginning and that they were hoping to prevent a direct NATO military incursion of their own into West Ukraine, which is still on the table. Um, And that's why they didn't escalate to a a real war. That's why they they fought this with their own self-imposed legal restrictions that they took very seriously, even if the West didn't talk about or or care about at all. Now, though, with the announcement uh, coming out today that uh, all that the, the four Regions, the uh, Donbass and the Lugansk National Republics, which have already been recognized as independent by Russia, but which I always considered to be a stopgap measure, as well as Kherson and Zaporozhye, the two regions in the south where the counteroffensive of Kiev has been completely and and brutally squashed with heavy casualties that are are largely liberated from Kiev regime forces. All four of these regions of Ukraine, uh, or formerly regions of Ukraine, I should say, are going to have referendums. Uh, And the referendums are going to take place already this weekend. They're going to last for four days to make sure that everyone gets in. Uh, despite, you know, the, what what is still in, you know, uh, active military conditions, at least on the borders. Um, and uh, they are going to vote on whether they want to be integrated into the Russian Federation. And if that happens, that means that any further hostilities in these areas with Kiev is not a special military operation. It is by the definition then, the defense of Russian territory, and that is automatically upgrades it to full total war.
0: Jason Goodman, do you have any questions so far for Mark Zabara?
3: No questions, but, you know, separately,
2: RT was just reporting that the, I believe, Serbian prime minister said we're on the brink of a global war. So uh, it sounds like perhaps correct.
3: Yeah, I mean, the head of RT... Uh, Russia Savonia, the parent company, uh, Margarita Semenyan, uh, tweeted out today. She tweeted out in Russian, uh, but all the Western journalists, of course, follow her and picked it up. And and kind of a few hours ahead of time, uh, she uh, announced that we're either on the verge of what will lead to complete victory uh, or uh, we're on the, the brink of World War Three, because there is the possibility that NATO could see this escalation by Russia. Um, uh, you know, uh, when, uh, you know, they've been putting so much military effort into their their proxy regime in Kiev and decide to send their own troops in it. They knew that nothing else would would, you know, have any chance. And if that's if that's what happens, the U.S. Uh, and, say, Poland, send their troops into West Ukraine, even in, you know, like a a, a nominally defensive measure. Um, okay, so if they go into West Ukraine, actually, I think Russia will let them sit there and say, good, take West Ukraine. We don't want it anyway. Um, <laughs> we know they don't want us. We don't want them. That's fine. I mean, that's that's the history and culture of West Ukraine, of Galicia, the, the side that welcomed Hitler in World War Two, and is they're they're the same people's uh, grandchildren uh, are are just as uh, much uh, you know in, in, in the replica Banderite battalions uh, of today,
0: but and does that, include, does that include The city of Lviv because yes, that's a big city yes. over there,
3: right? Yeah, that's yeah. When, we call it Lvov here, but Lvov, Ternopil Ivana me. Frankovsk, yeah, that that area there, what historically is known as Galicia. Let's say, for instance, Odessa, which is considered in Ukraine to be a Russian majority city, right, a Russian ethnic character, it's still held by the Kiev regime. It's on, in the southwest. It's the last major port that Ukraine holds. Let's say that the West says, hmm, Russia is probably going to move eventually to take all of East Ukraine. Right. It's the logical thing. It's a it's a defensive barrier. Plus, you know, uh, you know, uh, Odessa was brutally politically repressed from 2014 on forward and say uh, a return to Harkov, probably all of these. You can, but let's say particularly Odessa, it would be Ukraine's last major port city. What if the U.S. and Poland sent forces into Odessa to make sure that Russia... Uh, uh, didn't then move in that direction. That would be the biggest potential flashpoint to an actual direct on NATO-Russia military conflict. Like I said, West Ukraine, uh, if they moved in there, uh, Russia would probably say, eh, you know, you can have it. Uh, and, and, and that would be it. It would be a frozen—it con- would be like in Syria, where the Russian— uh, and the U.S. military, where the U.S. military still occupies uh, all of East Syria militarily uh, with the oil fields and the wheat fields. And, and Russia and the U.S. continually military deconflict, uh, conflict conduct deconfliction, uh, something that's been going on for seven years now. And there hasn't been an outbreak of World War III there. That's fine. Odessa would be a very different story, though, because Russia would would see a NATO move into Odessa to try and protect one port city for what otherwise might end up as a rump Ukrainian, uh, well, a a Ukrainian rump state that would be landlocked. Uh, That would be uh, uh, something they might try to preserve. And that's why Odessa is, you know, say a year down the road, because we're not there yet. It it, it would take a lot of time, a year, a year and a half, uh, something like that. But let's say then it escalates to that point where with taking the kids' gloves off, Russian forces return uh, early next year um, uh, on uh, the offensive everywhere, retake, uh, finish up Donbass, Freeing Donbass, uh return to Kharkov, and then set their attention on the south, uh, the southwest. You know, down to uh, Odessa. It's really the south, but um, that that is a, a possibility, possibility. And it's it's looking ahead. That's uh, it, what I consider to be the biggest future flashpoint.
0: But you think it will be a sort of a, a standoff? Yeah. With yeah, West, I think. Western- yeah.
3: Yeah, I think the the U.S. and Poland say might try to send troops in there. It's possible, right? It's not a guarantee. This is if they're, you know, ready to risk risk World War Three with Russia, right? Like I said, if they if NATO, if U.S. and Poland send troops into uh, Lvov or you know somewhere in, in West Ukraine and say we're here to defend, and Russia will be like, all right you know we'll we'll make a lot of noise but we're not actually going to do anything about that because we don't want west ukraine anyway um you know that that is one thing but odessa is 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 something that could could lead to a future uh you know Uh, It it is an escalation flashpoint sometime in the future in this conflict, something that regardless, even if Russia totally uh, mobilizes or even partially mobilizes, they really don't need to do more than partially mobilize. One million active duty, two million reserves. You only need a fraction of that, right? But you do need more than 150,000. I think Russia hoped at the beginning, Putin said that he didn't want to occupy Ukraine. You know, I, I think he was perfectly serious at the time. But everything that has happened since the total economic, existential economic war on Russia, the, the uh, you know, uh, the, the, so how much NATO has put in terms of military and training and, and salaries and everything else. And they've just turned what started off this conflict as a uh, Kiev regime military, what some nato training that has been effectively destroyed what kiev is now operating with now is essentially a nato created a second ukrainian military and um it it, again its most formidable nature still because of the the relative lack of training some of them are conscripted mismatch of nato gear no ability to maintain or repair it you know it what they really the advantage they have is manpower and that's forced conscripts and that's because Zelensky the regime is perfectly willing to throw large numbers of his own citizens out into art, artillery field charges across flat open steppe into heavy artillery and rockets for you know the sake of his regime which is just awful.
0: Well let's let's talk about the nature of that manpower. It haven't a lot of The good fighters in the Ukrainian military already been lost.
3: Yeah, a lot lot of, I mean, I I would say that of what was the, the best, the core, I mean, by Ukraine's own admissions. Right. In the pages of the Washington Post, when they talk to actual Ukrainian commanders on the ground, right, of their better military forces, their commanders are talking. They were talking already a month or two ago about 60 to 70 percent attrition. That's You know, we're that's cheap. that. It's it's just the end, right? It, it is no longer a an operable military unit at that point. When you've suffered sixty to seventy percent attrition, uh, you either have to go back from the drawing board or just be dismantled and put into other units. Uh, but you know that's 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 death now, right there.
0: And Russia still has its good military troops in a lot of cases, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, again, they uh, had this thunder run tactic in the beginning where they did a risky maneuver and it paid off in the south because Kherson and Zaporozhia fell quickly without a fight. It didn't work as well, probably because of failures with Russian intelligence, uh, more so than the military around Kiev and Shornogov. They had to withdraw from there. They took uh, some higher casualties than they wanted in the beginning there. I don't think there's any question about that but once they settled back into their phase 2 after about 5 weeks of the conflict to their their primary focus in the donbass then they adapted this this uh, fires heavy strategy of the R- R- russian battalion tactical group where they they confronted these heavy fortifications in this urban agglomerated area that the regime had built up over eight years, right? Multiple lines of defense, layers, steel, concrete, uh, fortifications, trenches, everything, uh, a modern Maginot line. Uh, Some Western military analysts actually called it the most heavily fortified area on the planet, more so than the DMZ in Korea. Um, So uh, Russia came up, you know, they use their fires to brutally um, soften up these fortifications for. Uh, probably weeks, you know, weeks, two, three weeks, four weeks, whatever is necessary with their overwhelming uh, artillery and um, rocket and aviation advantage. Um, And they only send their own troops in, you know, probing at first. Is there anything still alive moving in there? Uh, If so, then, all right, we'll pull back and pound it for another. This minimizes casualties on their side and maximizes casualties on on. The Kiev regime side, it's it's not a it's not a you know nice tactic. No, I mean you constantly hear uh, complaints from the Kiev regime forces that they never even see the enemy that they're fighting and they're all dying. But it minimizes casualties, and when you've already limited yourself to one hundred and fifty thousand, uh, you know uh, you know you you want to minimize those casualties. So by and large, Russia has. The, the casualty uh, rate between the, the, that Ukraine has lost more than Russia is somewhere between five and ten to one, probably closer to the ten to one.
0: Which is unsustainable for Ukraine. I I don't see how anyone thinks they can sustain that. Right.
3: I, I mean, for a long term conflict, no, they, they know they can't. Right. Um, again, this is. This strategy I, of, of this you know, mass cannon fodder attacks everywhere at once to try to get underneath Russian fires, um, it was inevitably going to cause this kind of escalation in response to Russia. Russia considers this an existential war. They haven't been treating it like an existential war because they didn't want to uh, uh, spark a NATO escalation. Now I guess they've decided that they're already past that red line long time ago, probably, uh, and they're already in a de facto conflict with NATO. So at this point, they see that escalation as necessary. And again, I've I've talked about Mark, the necessity for this Mark, from the beginning. But
0: yes, you have, Mark. Can we keep you to the end of the hour? Sure. No slate there. Yep. Thank you very much. Okay, because the other areas say people freaking out. And I think buying interest in propaganda is on the Shanghai Cooperation Organization's recent meeting. That's where Vladimir Putin met with leaders from India and China and other countries. And I thought that was very good news for Russia. And, but the Western media is making out to be China and India are urging Putin to end the war. I didn't interpret what happened at the SCO as going that way. Did you view that as, because what it means for the world, I think, long-term economically is a, a different financial system with the biggest countries in the world, China, India, and Russia. I think signaling very clearly the SCO that there's an unbreakable bond I think that's what Modi said, an unbreakable bond between these countries. Did you see any signs of disaster there, Mark?
3: Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, uh, this is what the the continual type of wishful thinking you see out of. Washington, out of the think tanks, out of the 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 blob commentariat, because the opposite is is really too big for them to think about. They've been saying the same thing about Russian Chinese bilateral relationships for uh, uh, you know fifteen years, seventeen years now. I think right. Oh, that you know that that they're constantly and the only thing that has happened as a result usually of U.S. antagonism provocations about both countries, is they are far more uh, uh, partners uh, than they ever were before. I mean, and and Putin and Xi Jinping, uh, by all accounts, have a very good personal relationship. And it is the Chinese leader who has said, we are closer than an alliance. Right. So I, I'll, I'll let that stand there. Uh, but I mean, there are There are reasons why um, I think that China and India have chosen uh, to, you know, uh, to minimize disruptions to their own economy through the application of more direct sanctions against them, have maintained a political rhetoric of being neutral and wanting, you know, peace while their uh, actions speak larger than words. And they both continually uh, increase, ever increasing, the amount of energy, metals, um, uh, military, and other that they have been buying from Russia uh, ever since, right? That that action speaks louder to word than words, and, and the West knows that. Um, so, no, I, that is not what I got out of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting. That is what I believe to be wishful thinking out of them. And Even uh, the Chinese government has already made another announcement since just since the end of the SEO meeting last week that Russia and China have uh, agreed on even further military interoperability exercises uh, that will mean even more joint exercises uh, between the two every year. And we're already seeing I don't know. I can't even keep count of how many of them, and they're constantly doing now uh, joint air patrols, joint strategic defense exercises. Uh, That that's crazy. That is an insane level of military trust and operability. Joint naval patrols uh, now uh, off the coast of Japan. um, You know, uh, in international waters, but in that area, there it's it's just going you know beyond and. One thing that has resulted from this is actually, particularly economically, I think India has – actually grown closer to Russia and been more conciliatory towards China. But anymore, it's not just Russia and China and India. The SCO is now the largest multilateral organization in the world, right? It already represents 43% of the world's population and some 30% of the global economy, right, with its members. But if you take a look, Right. Um, so Iran was just brought in as a member, another U.S. adversary, right, as a full member. Belarus and Mongolia are going to enter as full members probably within the next year. It was essentially announced um, that there's different tiers of membership as well. Um, Egypt and Qatar and Saudi Arabia all officially Asked to join the organization as dialogue partners, the second level of membership, right? And if you take a look at those countries, Egypt, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia, aren't those U.S. allies in the Middle East, right? I mean, yes, exactly, Saudi right. exactly yes. tens yes. of hundreds of billions of dollars of arms, uh, Egypt is given tens of billions of dollars of arms. And Qatar hosts the largest U.S. military uh, base in the Middle East. I mean, it's uh, huge, right? That's a CENTCOM. Um, and um, Bahrain, Kuwait, the UAE, Myanmar, and Maldives all announced that they're beginning that path to establish um, dialogue partners. That's like the entirety of the Middle East, right? I mean, no. a large portion of it.
0: Now, let me ask you, one thing that I think is, I'll call it moderate criticism by China and India, and even I think that is saying too much, but at worst I call it moderate criticism. Would you agree with that, or is that too much even?
3: I I would call it political rhetoric, Okay, even geopolitical rhetoric. I have not seen anything that I would take seriously. I think it points out
0: why this SEO is different fundamentally than Western organizations like the EU and NATO, which make a point of keeping all its members on the same page, forcing them to take the same rhetoric. This is not a group of countries that are trying to force their rhetoric on other countries. Russia's not threatening China. Hey. We won't deal with you if you criticize us. Does that make sense, Mark? It's a fundamentally different kind of group than the
3: West is used to dealing with. Yeah, um, and and actually, I I want I want I've got a a little quote here to to um, specifically highlight that difference that you're talking about, and this just came out of the SCO meeting in um, uh, uh, Samarkand. the, speaking of the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, Putin said the organization includes countries with different cultural and civilizational traditions, foreign policy yes. guidelines and models of national development. So they're all very, very different, like right? Russia, China, Iran. I mean, just like look, take a look at those big India, Pakistan, all those big countries. there, completely different cultures, civilizations, right, foreign policies, types of government. However, building work on the principles of equality and mutual benefit, respect for each other's sovereignty and differences, and refusal to interfere in internal affairs of each other made it possible to turn this organization into an effective mechanism for multilateral cooperation. Well, it's more than that, right? It is the framework for what a real multipolar world Right. In opposition to the the West, the U.S.-led Western global hegemony, the unipolar world. That's exactly what they're talking about, where it is not seen that we have to impose our political systems, our values on each other. We can respect each other's sovereignty and our difference. That's what makes it different. Because a
0: couple of those countries you mentioned, Iran and Iraq and Pakistan and India, they don't like each other
3: yeah right? iraq's not in there iraq's not in there yet to be fair but yeah definitely okay. uh iran yeah pakistan and india and uh china and india right um uh, definitely have their differences right i mean uh, serious differences but actually uh they i think have both seen that a way to Settle those differences is within the framework of the SCO, where you have this uh, joint idea that, um, you know, we're stronger, not fighting each other. Um, and even more than stronger, because it's not even so much about stronger. It's about more prosperous. Uh, uh, it's just and
0: sense, Jason, that It's a fundamentally different approach to international affairs by this gr- whole group of countries. And it's something America pays a lot of lip service, to democracy and freedom and all that. But it's lip service, they're actually letting countries be free and be sovereign. Does that make sense, Jason?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, what, what well, country, you know, they're not talking about invading them and imposing right. their system of government on them as a result.
2: Well, and at the top of the call, Lee, you asked Mark if he felt that, you know, if he agreed with the mainstream media, that there was a disaster at the SCO. And uh, I mean, the answer is yes, but the disaster is for the United States and the hegemony of the petrodollar, because, I mean, when you talk about, you know, we may not have uh, Iraq in there yet, but, you know, Saudi and Iran talking about entering into something yeah. like this. And how about the whole OPEC plus and what yeah. that's going to do, the oil prices?
3: Erdogan, Erdogan says that his primary goal now is to join the SCO as a full member. A member of NATO. Erdogan, the, 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 the president of Turkey.
2: Wow. Yeah, Turkey, unbelievable.
0: Yeah. Now, wow. I'm not trying That's- to give you a job you, you don't have, but if you're advising Viktor Orban from Hungary, would you would you suggest can you see Orban eventually joining the SEO? Can you see a positive possibility?
3: Not really. I mean, there is um, unfortunately, there is such a thing as geographical realities, right? And however much he might feel more politically predisposed to that idea as a uh, foreign policy realist right which i think and a pragmatist which i think victor orban is i can disagree with him a lot on on his domestic issues and so forth uh but you know i you know as a foreign policy he often makes a lot more sense than a lot of the other eu does but he is surrounded by eu countries And his country is dependent on EU trade. So until we see something like the EU collapse or something like that, uh, or, you know, Russia right up against Hungary's border and the collapse of the EU, then, you know, maybe, maybe. But that's that's a lot of what ifs for a future. So, uh, you know, it's like kind of like Serbia. Serbia is trapped, surrounded by the EU. Right? They don't. They don't have a lot of choices. They're a landlocked country, uh, and Hungary is in, in many cases in in the same in the same boat. So now, realistically, I don't see that anytime in the near future. However much he might prefer to be in different uh, geopolitical circumstances.
0: But you you said if the EU broke apart, broke apart, and I'm seeing the EU bursting at the seams right now. I'm not. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm seeing a lot of trouble with people.
3: Yeah, that's a possibility. That's a possibility too. Five years in the future, who knows? See, the
0: other thing Orban did is he pissed off Soros, and Soros is actually running a show on a lot of these moves.
3: To to be fair, though, it's actually not not really hard to piss off Soros. I mean, (laughs) maybe Orban pissed him off more than most, but yeah.
0: Threw him out of the country, you know. And he's from yeah. There's very few. So.
3: Well, he did not really live in Hungary anywhere yeah, He's a U.S. creature. I mean, Viktor Orban may have roots, ethnic roots in Hungary, but he's entirely an American creature.
0: So now I want to talk about something stupid I've seen Trump say a number of times. Can you explain? He made the statement that Germany. This is a year, you know, when he's president, a couple of years ago that Germany was too dependent on Russian energy. And I think that's a nonsense statement. Because if I've got two gas stations across the street, and one charges a lot less for gas, and I buy I, most of their gas, I am not too dependent
3: on them. I'm just buying... Was Germany yeah. dealing with And, and Russian- let's say that that gas is actually piped directly into your own garage and into your own exactly. car reliably for decades. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, if, you know, there was the possibility of conducting normal economic relations with Russia, then, then it would be a stupid statement. But if it's preconditioned by, we are going to enter into an economic and um, uh, military war by proxy against Russia. Then, then, yeah, it was stupid to become that dependent on Russian gas. But, it, you know, there's a lot of preconditions there.
0: Well, because was Germany dealing with Russia on that? Because for any reason, if they could have got the same deal from, let's say, Spain or England or France, they would have bought from them, I sure. think.
3: Absolutely. I mean, and I mean, they do have other sources of energy. It's just how much they got from Russia that they couldn't get anywhere else. And let's face it. It's not just Germany. It's most of Europe, by and told. And what they are only now. I mean, this was really a a lot of presidential of government advisors right both you know economically and geopolitically they had a really poor understanding not only of russia's economy but of the global economy and their own economies of how dependent the eu's prosperity for the last several decades has been on relatively cheap reliable supplies of russian energy and other commodities and and they thought that their economies with this um, tech you know, this um, uh, services heavy, entertainment heavy, tourism heavy, you know, um, first world, you know, the, the, the way the first world economies are, are supposed to be is more important economically than the fundamentals that every country needs to run. The commodities, gas oil, wheat, right, metals, those sorts of things. And, and it became kind of a battle of capital control versus commodities. And I hate to tell you, but commodities is winning hands down. We see what type of economic resources that you really are necessary at the bottom line that you can't do without, right? Russia can do without IKEA and Apple, and 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 um, uh, whatever, uh, Nike, sports, or or McDonald's, right? But the Europe can't do without energy.
0: And, and IKEAs come back, right?
3: Yeah, actually, IKEA came crawling back. You're right. <laughs> right, that's what so I've heard. I mean, I, I I haven't in actually case- been to see if they've opened up yet, but they I think there were in, announced intentions to come crawling back. yet.
0: In case there was a fear. Your- they you could not get cheap bookcases and linen bears. Mark is okay, Jason.
3: I, I, I actually, I, That's I would consider IKEA being gone improving the quality of the Russian, uh, the furniture of the Russian population as a whole across the board. So I, I consider that like losing McDonald's and Coca Cola. Actually, McDonald's. Here's a a funny story. Um, actually, Mark, a lot of Mark, these Mark, big companies. We're gonna stop
0: you one sec because we're almost out of time. It's almost midnight there in Moscow and we have a heartbreak at the end of the hour. So Mark Sabora, great appearance as usual. We're good we're glad you can get the meatballs from Ikea. And the meatballs kind of taste (laughs) the same as the bookcases. So probably material. (laughs) Mark Sabor, great appearance as usual. Be safe. Have a good night, Mark. That's Mark Uh Sabor. And when we take a break, we'll talk about what we talked about with Mark here on The Backstory. are back on the backstory and joined today on truth tuesday by the great jason goodman this is the backstory fantastic appearance by mark Sabatà, as usual did you enjoy that jason
2: yeah it's always good to get his analysis you know being there in russia he understands these things much better than most people and also he's just individually a very smart guy
0: yeah and and Tarif's on the line, so I want to get to that. But let's say who's coming up this hour is the great immigration expert Susan Pye will be our guest. And Jason, great. take us out of the segment by saying the name of the show. This is the backstory. Okay, Tarif, 202-521-1320. Thanks for calling back, Tarif. What's on your mind? Okay, First, i like to say
4: free joining signs. Uh, some some things I, I, have, I have to say. Um, okay, Putin going to be speaking tomorrow, nine nine to ten Moscow time, which is going to be one o'clock Central time, our time, and two o'clock Eastern time, a.m. in the morning. Um, he's going to address the um the people talking about the terror. You know what's going on in that region. You have vote. The referendum is going to take place September the 23rd to the 27th, dealing with DPR, LPR, the Zippo-Rosa uh, region, in Harrison. And it's um, predicted that they're going to join Russia. Once they join Russia, then there's going to be Russian territory. It is reported that uh, um, Ukraine is moving some of the reserve troops out of Ky- uh, Kiev to Khokov. Uh, the Hoko region and also they they are speculating that they're gonna use those troops to attack Servdoyong and link chance to try to stop that um uh, referendum but it seems like it might not happen because it's like a less dis, dis- effort, e- effort from for um Ukraine to try to um, what are you saying
0: what are you saying might not happen the military move or the referendum no no uh, excuse me. The movement of Ukrainian troops from K- right Kyiv. It seems to me the referendum is solid. That's happening.
4: Yeah. Right. Right. But it, yeah, yeah, it's going to happen the twenty third through the twenty seventh. Where you have the four regions in um southern Ukraine that's going to join Russia. And once that happened, then you know we're gonna see you might have an uptake in our um, military action. So that's what's going on in that a part of that world, and also, um, I like to mention that i remember some years ago when I was working at the VA when I was going, through, when I was going through as a, you know, whistle, well before I blew the whistle, they had some people from DC came down there to do an inspection on the whole facility at Mikey the I remember them, you know, just looking at me crazy as if somebody told them something about me, you know, and for that to happen. It had to somebody had to share some information about me, which means maybe you have paperwork, or uh, paper trail or something, or maybe I can forward request, or uh, if I get a lawyer one day, they can forward request. That put me in the mind of what happened with Hunter Biden, how they were using the Secret Service to go after his handgun that was thrown into a garbage can or something like that, and how they was using the Secret Service as basically as his
0: babysitters. Well, like that. Now on the on the referendum, let me ask Jason a question. On the referendum, Jason, if you said if the US was in a special military operation with let's say Canada, and Canada uh, had taken the entire eastern seaboard or the south, fifteen percent of the US was now part of Canada. Okay, fifteen percent. Because at minimum We're talking 15% of Ukraine is going to be part of Russia. Would you say Uh that was a big victory for the U.S.? How is Uh, anyone saying (laughs) Russia's losing? Russia's about to acquire 15% of Ukraine. How is that a loss?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Ukraine is really... the, The only area that I see where Ukraine can even claim any sort of effective, air quotes, victory is in the disinformation sphere and the social media sphere. They're telling everybody that they're winning, and they're doing a good job of fake news. But uh, other than that, I don't see any actual victory.
0: Yeah, yeah that's right. And, Tarif, anything else? Because we got to move along, but anything else? Well, the leader of the Chechens says something that um they're going to be, he's starting to hit
4: the um, Ukrainians harder now. In uh, in that uh western the uh, eastern part of uh, Ukraine. So that was just published you know, like a few minutes ago. So we're gonna see what the Russians got in store for the Ukrainians the next coming month or weeks, you know.
0: That's about it. great call, Trees. Thanks for that. And uh so Jason, uh yep. that SCL we we're talking about. I really think that's a huge deal because, you know, it's so many things. They have their own credit card and their own banking system, the equivalent of the U.S. backbone of the banking SWIFT, right? And it's a separate one. And if you look at it, if you're a country, Jason Onia or whatever, if you're a country, (laughs) would you prefer to be in a country— where they're going to tell you what to do, or where you're going to be free to trade with someone, even if you disagree politically.
2: Yeah. Because that's a a choice to me. Right. That's the thing. I mean, we were remarking, when Mark was on, historically have hated each other, it's a frightening testament to the degree to which they hate being bullied by the United States, that
0: well, also, let me point
2: aside, out, bu- bullied by, bullied by the,
0: but let me say, bullied by the U.S. and bullied by the uh, WHO NATO. and the World Economic yeah. Forum and NATO, they're all one. That's a big blob. But those organizations, yeah. it is Soros and Schwab. And that means that for all those countries, on stuff, stuff like, you know, they start to bully the country on do you have transgender rights? Right? They, right. They're taking BSG, countries,
2: yeah.
0: Right. Or yeah, right. Exactly right. They bully you on social issues too. And if you if you're not politically correct on transgender athletics, they'll say, Well, your country can't do business with us. Imagine <laughs> how that looks to Saudi Arabia. No, yeah. I'm serious. Yeah, you're right. Or China. Right. So I'd say, I I think that, it, and that's why I brought up Orban. I think that he may get sick of what he's dealing with, with the EU. England, for all the talk about Brexit, they didn't really Brexit. They Brexit right into yeah. out of the frying pan. And into fire as the phrase goes. Yeah. Out of out of the EU and into Liz Truss, It's basically <laughs> the same thing. Right? Yeah. Pretty much. Certainly not. <laughs> and and if they had some small countries, I brought this up yesterday, but you're a nerd, Jason. I think the combination of China and India in a in a trade thing. It's so important because together, the success of the American computer and high tech industry has been cheap Chinese manufacturing of hardware and cheap Indian software because so many of the programmers right. came over from India. And what they learned over here right. is a pipeline for programming, you know, how to get software done. Does that make sense? Mm. People
2: don't
0: know, you know, you look at the, yeah, yeah, no, go ahead, Jason. I I was just saying, you look at the the people think the the people who don't code, don't, don't, don't understand that a big part of the process is understanding how to manage coders, right? Is understanding how to manage a team and set goals. And does it make sense, Jason?
2: Absolutely. But the thing that was coming to my mind is the testimony of Peter Zatko, the whistleblower at Twitter, who was talking about, uh, you know, foreign nationals as developers of software and the the threat that that poses to national security as these tools become part of day to day life. The notion that, uh, you know, a a software engineer at Twitter can gain access to your geolocation data. You know, if somebody doesn't like you, they can know where you are. Minute to minute and cause something harmful to happen. Really quite scary.
0: Well, it's right, it's scary, really. He he does that to scare the normies and people right. who are buying into the fact, anyone who buys into the fact that a threat the biggest threat to national security is the US government. Period, yeah. the end. Numbers one, two, three, four, and five are the US government. The biggest threat to me or anybody listening now is the US yeah. government. It's what Joe Biden's (laughs) doing and what Nancy Pelosi is doing is not any other country. Because look at what China and Russia are doing. They want to be in alliances where they're not bullied around and bossed around.
2: I can't argue with China. China and Russia are probably also very afraid of breaking into Donald Trump's house because they expect they'd face justice. (laughs) Joe Biden has no such fear. Also, Trump's
0: an idiot. Why do you want to break into his house? What do they think they're going to get? They have no reason <laughs> to. No, I'm serious. If Russia's, let's say you buy into lies and the democratic narrative that Russia helped Trump get elected, in fact, Russia was got a bad worse deal from Trump than from Obama. Yeah, yeah. Donald Trump was harder on <laughs> Russia, and he. I'm so offended by this U.S. policy. A lot of people accept. This is one of the reasons Donald Trump's stupid statements, because they affect his base. The U.S. should have. He should have said, "We're not going to compete with sanctions." You see, let's let's say Jason, you were planning, to open a, a ice cream shop on a corner, and <laughs> we said, "There's an ice cream shop across the street, and I've heard they're pretty good," and you said, "Don't worry about it." I know the mayor, the mayor is going (laughs) to send health inspectors over there and we're going to, right. And we're going to tax the ice cream shop and (laughs) their best ingredients. We're going to put sanctions on and we're going to be that way. I'd be like, (laughs) as your friend, I'd be like, why don't you Jason,
2: you learn to make ice cream good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would never, I I would never do such things,
0: but this is what,
2: that's what they do. Yeah.
0: Right, Russia sold a product, a good product, cheaper on energy than anyone else was selling to Germany. That's why they became, quote unquote, dependent on them. And so the problem is there's no problem with being, you know I'm dependent on all kinds of things. and if if you said to me, well, the, that landlord you got, well, what if he decides to put poison in your water?
2: <laughs> well I think what right, he meant was it's a bad idea to have such an adversarial relationship with them and remain dependent on them.
0: No, he was saying it's about he tried he tried to stop Nord Stream two, the pipeline, over and over again. Yeah. Donald Trump tried to intervene and shut down a pipeline that was none of his business. And all of his users, yay, 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 yay. Trump, Trump, Trump. Stop you idiots, you morons. He has no <laughs> principles. And he's, he's, he's completely violating any principles of capitalism, which is compete. If Trump said, we're going to build a better pipeline, Elon Musk will build a pipeline that teleports energy there or something like that. Great, right, <laughs> do that. But do you see what I'm saying? And I'm seeing Trump yeah. say stuff stupid in his rallies as bugging me, Jason
2: like what? What else did
0: he say? We played the quotes yesterday. But now, do we, do we have that
2: Josh Howley clip? Uh, he's Central? tearing up the, the TikTok lady.
0: Let, let's, let's play this clip. This is kind of a long clip, Jason. This is Josh yeah. Howley talking, and I thought this is very good.
5: Have a listen. Hit. Mr. Cox, I know that Facebook has said in the past that it's their position as a private company, you're not subject to the First Amendment. I assume that hasn't changed, is that right? That's correct, Senator. But uh, the United States government is subject to the First Amendment. I think we can probably all agree on. Hopefully we can. Hopefully that's still true in this country. Um, is it appropriate for Facebook to work with the United States government to avoid the First Amendment, help the U.S. government avoid the First Amendment? Uh, Senator, we do
1: think it is uh, sometimes appropriate to be in contact with government and with government organizations.
5: To help them avoid the First Amendment? Senator, I'm not sure what what specifically you're referring to. Mm. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think it's appropriate to work with the United States government to target private individual speech that is constitutionally protected? Senator, I'm not aware of, of that. Mm. Well, let me... Um, let me educate you. On July sixteenth, two thousand twenty-one, Facebook an employee at Facebook wrote to the Department of Health and Human Services saying, "And I quote: I know our teams met today to better understand the scope of what the White House expects from us on misinformation going forward." On July twenty-third, two thousand twenty-one, a Facebook employee thanked. HHS, quote, for taking the time to meet earlier today and wanted to make sure you saw the steps we just took this past week to adjust policies and what we are removing with respect to misinformation. This included, and I'm still quoting, increasing the strength of our demotions for COVID and vaccine-related content. On April 7th, 2021, a Facebook employee thanked the CDC for responding to misinformation queries, and I quote, we'll get moving now, to be able to remove all but that one claim as soon as the announcement and authorization happens. On July 28th of this year, a Facebook employee reached out to CDC about, quote, doing a monthly misinfo debunking meeting. The CD responded, yes, we would love to do that. Sure they would. On July twentieth, twenty twenty one, Clark Humphrey at the White House, who's digital director of the COVID nineteen response team, emailed Dave Sumner at your company, among others, asking any way we can get this pulled down, and cited a specific Instagram account. Within forty six seconds, your company responded and said, "Yep, on it." That sounds like what in the law we call a pattern and practice of meeting coordinating and colluding with the United States government to target particular speech that no one in any of these emails alleges is incitement, which would not be constitutionally protected. No one in any of these emails alleges it directly encourages violence, which would not be constitutionally protected. So it appears to all be constitutionally protected speech on, I might add, very politically sensitive topics that Facebook is directly working with the U.S. government to target and remove. Is that your company policy to do this kind of thing? Senator, we were... We were quite public about our uh,
1: cooperation with uh, health organizations during the unprecedented time of COVID. We knew that people expected and wanted accurate information on our platform. We had conversations with the CDC, with the World Health Organization, and with other public health organizations, not just in the U.S., but abroad, in order to understand how to help make sure that folks weren't getting
5: information that could cause imminent harm. Fair enough. So you're saying that this this was, in fact, company policy to have these kinds of meetings with HHS, with the CDC, with the White House directly that you did engage in in this behavior. And you think that it was entirely fine. Is that your testimony? Senator, I do believe it's appropriate for companies like ours to be in consultation with public health organizations and with government. And, and you, you can confirm that things like taking down a private Instagram account and uh, adjusting your policies at the behest of, of the White House uh, and putting into place misinformation policies at the behest of CDC, that that those things you think are appropriate. This was company policy to do so. Is that fair to say? Senator, I'm not familiar with the Instagram account
1: specifically that you're referencing, but we do know that people expected and hoped from the platforms that we would help them get accurate information about COVID
5: during the unprecedented time, especially at the beginning. Well, isn't there a difference between you as a platform putting forward information and censoring your users, at the behest of the White House, the administration more broadly, and the CDC, isn't there a distinction there? We specifically uh, wanted to work with public health
1: experts to understand the relationship between information and behavior, and so we did consult with the CDC, the World Health Organization, and others uh, to understand how
5: the, the platform policies we built were affecting public health. Well, you didn't just you didn't just consult with them to understand how they affected public health, you actually censored on their behalf. I mean, you t- you took these emails, I'm just quoting from a sample of them, which, by the way, have been disclosed in litigation. These, these emails show that you took censorship steps. You took down accounts. You planned misinformation policies. You adjusted your policies at the behest of the United States government. I mean, that, that's not just some theoretical thing that's actually targeting your user's speech but you're you're i appreciate your forthrightness by the way so but you're saying that that was you think that's fine and that was your policy senator we we've been
1: public about our policies on covid misinformation specifically as well as on misinformation
5: generally so you think there's nothing you're not concerned about any of this nothing that i just read to you you're not concerned about it at all
1: Respectfully, Senator, I think the balance
5: of how to protect free expression as well
1: as public safety is a difficult issue, but it's one we're committed to working with outside
5: experts and publishing our work. Well, um, I appreciate you being so forthright. As I said, this is actually from litigation between the state of Missouri and the state of Louisiana and the federal government. I, I anticipate that your remarks on oath today are going to be very interesting and helpful to that litigation. I'll just say this: My view is is that the United States government is bound by the First Amendment. They cannot encourage or coerce or incite or collude with a private party to get around the First Amendment. But you just said to me today that that's basically what they did, that you coordinated with them repeatedly over a pattern of months and years to adjust and target your speech policies for protected speech at the behest of the United States government. I have to tell you, I've got a big problem with that. And I th-
0: now, Jason, do you have a big yeah. problem with that? By the way, it's a long <laughs> clip, but I think you you see why. First off, I know you might not be used to news shows playing a long clip, unedited, but I want yeah. you to hear Josh Hawley, a demonized Republican, a right-wing extremist, he's called. Right. And that, I think, he makes a good point. It's against the First Amendment with the Biden administration, whether you like it or not. Whether you agree with it or not, that speech about the COVID-19 is protected under the First Amendment. Jason,
2: what say you? Well, I think it's an amazing clip. And I think that Josh Hawley is a very talented prosecutor that he was the attorney general of uh, Missouri. So he basically was deposing that guy and it didn't go well for him. He admitted, you know, Hawley even says this is going to be very interesting for this ongoing litigation because you've just handed the plaintiff exactly what they want. You're admitting that the government told you to do it and you acted as a government agent and you did it, and that means that you are subject to the First Amendment and you're in a lot of trouble.
0: And the guy who's interviewing from Facebook knows how to do PR speak where he's... Right. But you're, you're right. You're essentially a witness in a trial, dummy. Don't yeah. Your PR speak <laughs> Well, I think it's appropriate for us to work with key partners. Blah, 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 right. blah, 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 right. blah, You just lost in court, pal. You're stupid. Yeah. You're so smart, you're yeah. stupid. And Josh exactly. Holly tricked you. Do you agree with me, Lee- well,
2: well, I was, I was going to ask you, do you think it's PR speech, or is he so convinced that this is the right thing to do that he's going to come right out and tell you? That's the question.
0: I think the, the language that you use can convince you of things. So I don't see it as a useful distinction. I don't think he's really to MAGA mega-patriot. Yeah. No, Does make I sense?
2: Agree. I don't think he is, no. <laughs> so, 202
0: 1320 it's time for the killer of owls. Owl killer. Perfect hey, caller after that clip. What did you think of Josh Hawley in that clip?
6: So, did you hear, I'm, I'm going to get to it, but did you hear, uh, Laura uh, Logan on um, The War Room with Steve Bannon talking about how she had a source at the top of the United Nations that, that was saying how they were going to bring 100 uh, million um, illegal immigrants into the United States of America and how it's all, the deal's already been, it's already, it's already concrete. They're already acting as if the United States and Mexico and Canada are a regional government. The deals have already been set, right? And she went into these private-public partnerships. That is what you're hearing with Facebook. It's the private-public partnership. You, we're, just yes. in on the, we're just not in on the, hey, this is the way the Great Reset and the New World Order is moving forward. We've already set these parameters. We've already set this behavior up. This is what is. And Josh Howley still thinks that the First Amendment exists. But because he still thinks he lives in the United States of America, you you know, you live in the facade
0: of it, but. Uh, But I I just say he does still live in the United States of America. And in the right court, not all of them are going to follow the law, but some courts follow the law. And some courts, I believe the Supreme Court, when a test case comes before them, will uphold the First Amendment.
2: I really do. I hope so. I hope so.
0: I've seen no evidence. That's the Supreme Court will rule against the First Amendment.
2: One of them doesn't even know what a woman is. So that's a little problem, man.
0: That's That's one. I'll give you that one. I'll give you three <laughs> more, Even I'll give you three more. I'll give you four bad votes. But we still have a majority. Okay. And I haven't, seen, I haven't seen a bad ruling on the First Amendment. I want to talk in court. You know, Mark Dice
6: um, just did a video talking about the Belizean growth. I never knew existed. And it's basically the Bohemian Grove in Belize for like all these high-powered females. And Sotomayor is the one that disclosed it. The Republicans apparently dug that up in her background when um, she was being confirmed in the Senate. And she actually had to leave the Bohemian Grove because the bar association that she is a member of says that you're not allowed to be part of any group that would discriminate on race, sex, national origin, all, all that stuff. and
0: Well, I'll see- Al Keller, let me stop here one sec, because I have Susan Pye online, and I want to get to her in about two minutes. But I want to ask you something. I was listening today to Radio Sputnik and to Political Misfits, and I'd like to bring John on to talk about this. But he said to a guest, John said to a guest, that Alex Jones has admitted that he just makes everything up and he's just playing a character. That's what John said. Now you followed Alex Jones for a while. Yeah. Have you ever heard Alex Jones say anything like that? Like he just Never. makes everything up.
6: Oh, well, and John is very ignorant. On I love John, but he's very ignorant, and he he chooses to be on the Alex Jones thing. Uh, memories like, oh, he sells fake pills. Why does he do? You know what I mean? He not you had to break down that he self funds himself. It was totally revolutionary when he. You know, he went that route.
0: Um, and his his, his guest on the show went on to say. He said, "I th- I think Tucker does the same thing. He just says what he says to go along." And he didn't give a single example. And John just said, "Yeah, yeah, I agree." Now they're quoting. They're quoting uh, a trial where, um, they're,
6: they're quoting his divorce trial where his his lawyer. Right. No, when he's making when he's Play, when he's dressed up like the Joker, he's playing a character. That's he's not really the Joker. Not that he doesn't believe what he says, and he's always an actor. They take that out of out of context, of course. You know, he's clarified that probably 150 times that he believes to the best of his ability everything he's telling you he he believes. Um,
0: but no, and I, it, it, it occurs it, to me a lot of people. John's a very smart guy, and I love John too. But when he first started on a show with me. He thought the 100 Biden laptop was fake. And I think that a lot of liberals, and John broadly is, convince themselves that Alex Jones, they don't need to pay any attention to him. And he just makes up stuff. And then question you think that. And if you think that, you're going to miss a lot of truth that Alex is putting down. Don't take anyone, including me, don't take anyone without questioning them but don't dismiss people with a laugh and just oh yeah he's an idiot Would you agree al color uh,
6: yeah 100 percent. and you know john drives me crazy with that because the guy is such a, he has such guts and he's so smart on so many issues but i, I really think he has a blind spot on globalism and you know the The real dark work. Yeah, I mean, I remember the Hunter Biden laptop thing. He's like, "Oh no, we can't believe this yet." Like he he even when you were reading the email, there, like he didn't want to believe Tony Bublinski
0: And It's like, come you on. See, and and here's why: if someone like as smart as John and with the life experience, having served time in prison at behest of the government, believes that, imagine what good a dentist or a history teacher exactly you see. Do you see with the of management?
2: Yeah, because there's a lot of educated people who there's some kind of deep, not yet fully understood psychological phenomenon that causes this. People get it's got to be a self defense mechanism where they you know they can't believe. I, I did an interview with John on nine eleven, where you know he believes that nineteen guys who knew how to fly Cessnas, blue jets at five hundred and eighty miles an hour at one atmosphere into a building 200 feet wider than the jet itself. And uh, he believes a lot of things that are just in the news. And I think that there's a sense of security and comfort that uh, comes from the understanding that you're not being lied to.
0: Well, Jason, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk to Susan Pye about the latest immigration shenanigans. This is Lisa Danahan on The Backstory. We're back on The Backstory and on 105.5 FM, AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. Joining us now, the brilliant and compassionate Susan Pye. Hey, Susan, how are you doing?
7: Hey, Lee, I'm fine.
0: How are you? Good. So would you agree with the description of you as brilliant and compassionate?
7: Um, I, I don't know. I, I hope I'm compassionate, and I don't think I'm all that brilliant. I think that I just um, try to tell the truth.
0: Well, that makes you pretty brilliant in in this world. But you know a lot about the immigration issue, and that's the brilliant part. But also, because you've been an immigration attorney, you don't just see it as laws on the books and policies. You care about people, and I've known you long enough to know that you do care about people. And do you think more people need to look at this issue with their hearts as well as their heads? and with their heads as well as their hearts. Susan? Well,
7: yeah, I, I think so, because, you know, if you're a Christian, um, that's what our religion dictates we do. So I, I definitely think that that's missing from the equation. But if you subtract religion out of it, then I think it's just up to each individual, you know, how compassionate they want to be to welcoming the stranger and whatnot.
0: Now, what do you make, first off, before we get to the response to it, What do you make of the situation where governors chose, and and, uh, let me point out, it's being called all Republican governors doing this, sending immigrants to other cities like New York or Washington on buses and sometimes planes. But the Democrat mayor of El Paso recently sent, I think, three buses to New York. What do you think of the governors? Are you compassionate at all? for people like Greg Abbott and the mayors of towns in Texas and in Arizona. What about that, them, Susan?
7: Yeah, I can definitely sympathize with, you know, the, um, the border states and the undue burden on them um, from uh, receiving a disproportionate amount of, uh, and they are authorized aliens. They're not unauthorized or undocumented they're documented as having seeking asylum, and they're um, admitted into the United States pending the disposition of their asylum, uh, asylum claim. But, it, of course, you know, the border states are bearing most of the financial um, burden on their systems and social services. So I'm definitely sympathetic to that, but, you know, there are limits to what they can do, and those limits are set forth by law.
0: And you, you think they may have gone over those limits?
7: Uh, Governor DeSantis is is in a a problematic situation now. He has not only um, actually misallocated state funds in order to transport aliens from Texas into Florida when those state funds are supposed to be to transport unauthorized aliens out of Florida— so I think that's a big problem for him. But there's also allegations of fraud, kidnapping, and violation of international laws as well in what he did. And I, I can get into the details of those if you like.
0: Sure, get into them. Yeah.
7: Well, the fraud and kidnapping, you know, if he, if he lured the aliens to take this flight to Martha's Vineyard, which is a location that probably none of them were familiar with before they were um, set upon by, you know, the person who acted as a liaison uh, they were promised a better life. They were promised jobs that that were not there. They were promised cash assistance, and that applies to refugees, not asylees. Um, and now,
0: let me ask, let me ask you, let me stop you for one sec. Do you know that for a fact? Have they stipulated that, as the said, what they said, or is that the accusation being made against them by law enforcement?
7: Well. A- a lot of the aliens, if not all of them, had were in possession of pamphlets that were in English and English, okay. and those pamphlets set forth, made a, a bunch of promises that did not apply to them, and actually even gave them bad legal advice.
0: Right. So, so that's what I'm asking. In law, of course, they're like pieces of paper, and there's pieces of paper here,
2: right? Written proof. Well, but who, who supplied the pamphlets Did that come from the governor's office? Was there a third party contractor operating the flights? There's still a lot of unanswered questions. I, I wonder if in a general sense, though, what you think, uh, it, it, obviously, each case, as you point out, if the census is taking people from Texas to Florida, send them something else, that's, that's a little bit weird. But, we, you know, we've got Abbott sending tons of migrants to New York City, What about Biden having uh, flown migrants to Westchester Airport? I mean, what's going on that we are just injecting two or three million people all over the country without even checking or going through? I mean, the reason we have immigration attorneys— It
0: it would seem to me, Jason, and Susan, correct me if I'm wrong, that the pamphlets are the thing that make the difference. If there is written material from the Biden administration saying, we're going to take you to Westchester— and you can get jobs and live free in Yonkers or whatever, in White Plains. That's one thing. But it seems to me that there's a pamphlet making promises. That's where DeSantis could be, in fact, in trouble,
2: I think. Oh, if, if he is, made that pamphlet, we just don't know, do we? Maybe a migrant has well, a pamphlet. Where did that come from? You,
0: you don't have an alternate alter theory. The logical thing is, where do they get the pamphlets from? I, who? what were you suggesting? It who who came told from? us
2: they had a pamphlet? Yeah, I don't know. It's the first time I've heard of a pamphlet.
0: I bet. I bet someone found them uh, on the aliens. But Susan,
7: am I wrong? Right. Yeah, they were found on at least thirty of the aliens, and they were. Um, it, it was a Venezuelan migrant who was paid by a woman named Perla, I think, and Perla was is supposedly. You know, she's the key to say to link the pamphlets back to DeSantis, obviously. But irrespective of that, what's what's more, I think, what's more problematic for DeSantis is that there's a law that was passed that allocated that $12 million to transport aliens out of Florida. That's called SB 1808. And your, your listeners can go to Florida Policy Institute and just look at SB 1808 to see the contents of that law. That law says that that twelve million dollars is to transport unauthorized aliens out of Florida. So the first problem is is that he used that money to transport aliens, not unauthorized, but documented aliens, into Florida. So that's the first problem. The second problem is that he then uh, transported authorized aliens, not unauthorized aliens, out of Florida to you know to wherever. So that's misappropriation of state funds, and I think that's where he. Faces the biggest problem,
0: and isn't it because I sorry, DeSantis, I'm I'm in favor of the trolling, but if I was a governor of state, I would get a smart attorney to come in and go, "Don't do this. Don't give them. Does that make sense? Don't give them pamphlets or don't make any promises." There was a way I think Desantis could have done this if he thought it through a little more. That complied with the law. It, does that make sense, Susan? Is Susan there? But Jason, okay, I don't, I'm not hearing Susan. I, but Jason, do you see I my think, point? Yeah. He could have thought this well, through.
2: I Think that uh, just from a practical standpoint, historically speaking, when somebody's acting in their role as the governor, unless he like you know runs somebody over with a car or does something like completely ridiculous like that. They're just going to say that he's got immunity because he was you know, behaving in, in the context of his role as the governor. And even if he did break the law, they're not going to do anything to him. It's all good, good for MSNBC News and stuff like that.
0: Except, is Susan there? Do we have Susan back?
2: I hear her very quietly. It's almost like something's oh, okay. changed on her headset or something.
0: Yeah. So, Susan, we can't hear you. But I think the problem is, it's like January 6th. If anyone went to January 6th thinking that Republicans won't be treated the same as Democrats, right. if, if they said, well, after all, Black Lives Matter did this, tough. That's Black yeah. Lives Matter. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. Don't think you're going to be treated the same. DeSantis have sure said they're going to try to get me.
2: Yeah, you're right. You're right. And they will. I don't think he cares.
0: And if he, and if he gets in some trouble for this— I don't think he's going to go to prison or anything. No way. He didn't no way. think it And what I think Republicans need to start showing is that they're a Republican who realizes they think things through and realize the trouble they, they'll get in. Does that make well, sense, Jason?
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, anytime we start getting down to the details like this, I want to see these pamphlets, I want to see who said they were on 30 migrants, I want to run down some of these details. Sure, it's plausible that they could have had pam- pamphlets, but we know how the mainstream news operates. They use un, you know, sourced uh, anonymous tips and uh, all kinds of made-up nonsense, so I'm not sure that there's I necessarily believe that.
0: Th- there's a claim, of a piece right. of paper, say certain things, so they can be sought out. And, I'd like to and see
2: a photo of you and then research that. And if you or find out the there's no responded. piece of paper. if the governor's office says, yes, this is a legitimate thing that we printed up and handed out versus we have no idea where that came from. Somebody handed it to the migrants. We don't know who's doing what.
0: We've got Susan back. Is there any doubt in your mind or have you seen the, the pamphlets, Susan?
7: I've seen the pamphlets, and I mean, there's really not any doubt in my mind that. And one thing to note is that, in his defense, that he had all of the aliens signed waivers, but you know, you can't you can't agree to waive an unlawful act.
0: Yes, right. So, uh, so what what consequences do you think? DeSantis is not going to face arrest, obviously, but he could get in some trouble. What trouble could he get in reasonably, Susan?
7: Um, Well, you know, Ron DeSantis is a lawyer, so, you know, he could face a bar complaint, obviously, for giving bad legal advice. One of the things that they said that aliens do is change their address to USCIS, and USCIS is not the agency for asylees, it's ICE or immigration court. So, you know, that's kind of tantamount to, like, bad legal advice on the fraud and kidnapping or, you know, luring people under false pretenses. um, I mean, if it's if it's a criminal offense, it's a criminal offense. So I don't see why the governor would be treated any differently than anybody else that's committing a criminal offense.
2: Of course, of his regular duties as a governor and we've seen a lot of politicians, a lot of criminal activity and not face forget about prosecution, they haven't even faced this level of scrutiny. Now, Clinton Susan,
0: I want to ask you a general question, because you've been an attorney for how long? Um,
7: since 1992, or since 1998, sorry, 1998.
0: <laughs> yeah, so about going on 25 years, right? Right. Now, in your opinion, and I'm asking a general question There's no way you can know a specific answer to. But in general, if you have the facts and the law on your case, in other words, you're right about the law and you're right about the facts. I'd say there's still about, in any court, a 10% possibility you'll lose just because you get the wrong judge or whatever. 10% noise in the system. Do you think that's about right? It's not zero and it's not 100%, but there's some small percentage of the fact, no matter how good your case is, that you'll lose or how bad your case is that you win. Do you agree?
7: No, my perspective is if there's that's all there is, is the facts and the law, and everything else, you know, should be, should be addressed separately. If you have a bad judge, then you should pursue the, you know, action against the bad judge. If you have a bad jury, then you push through the action against the bad jury. So in my mind as an attorney, you know, that's all we have is the facts and the law. And when we deviate from that, that's when we get into trouble.
0: No, right. But but I'm saying if you go into a, a trial and you think, well, I've got the facts and the law on my side, I'll win. You're right. That's you an appeal process. You have an appeal process. But I'm saying there's a small percentage that it's not sufficient Where you can guarantee it, and I, I think you're right. You pursue it legally, you appeal or something like that, right? Right. But people need to be realistic. That is not the case. That is no chance you'll lose. But it's not the case you're doomed, because I think the courts are actually pretty good. What do you think of the courts in general, Susan?
7: mistakes can be made at any phase of court proceedings, and mistakes are often made. That's why we have successes in things like the Innocence Project or, you know, um, DNA um, reversals of death penalty cases, but I think ultimately our justice system is one of the best in the world, and I've traveled all over the world and worked all over the world, and I can guarantee you that we have one of the best systems of justice in the world, and I really wholeheartedly believe in it.
0: Well, and and I mentioned that, especially in contrast to our political system, which I think you'd agree often reaches bad conclusions on policy for a variety of reasons on a variety of sides. The judicial system, I have more faith in it than the political system. You agree? Agree. Yeah. Now, looking at that, what can we learn about the Democrats? from what Ron DeSantis did. Because I think, if he was trying to show that Democrats are hypocrites on this, do you think whatever legal trouble he may be facing, he proved that point clearly? And what does it say about the Democrats, Susan?
7: What does... I'm not sure I understand your question. What does... um What prove about... What, what, about?
0: what DeSantis and these other governors sending these illegal immigrants into Democrat areas. For instance, when the immigrants got up to Martha's Vineyard, they liked it. He didn't send them to a torturous place. It was a nice place, and the liberal establishment immediately threw them out. And it's people who claim to be, do you think a lot of Democrats virtue signal on immigration, but when the rubber hits the road, show no actual compassion promote policies that end up hurting immigrants. Susan, does that make sense?
7: I think that, yeah, I think that the Democrats in Martha's Vineyard welcomed the um, immigrants, even with no notice. I I thought that they did a really good job of, you know, providing for their immediate needs. And then uh, they didn't kick them out. They relocated them to a place that had enough room to house them. So um, I think one thing that bothers me, though, is, It's like in New York, you see this happening a lot, where the homeless shelter um, capacity is overwhelmed by the migrants, you know, that are uh, being sent to New York. But but that case is different than what happened with Martha's Vineyard because clearly there are some aliens that are at the border and they express a clear desire to go to New York because they want to reunite with family there or they have a sponsor there or, you know, for whatever reason. But, um, you know, when you see that, Uh, Migrants are being treated better than U.S. citizen homeless population. Then you know that there's kind of a disconnect there, and that bothers me.
0: And do you think? And we recently had word that two million aliens reached the southern border this year, a record. And do you think the system is too overwhelmed for any authorities to deal with it, Susan? Yeah, this
7: is early. Unbelievably, profoundly broken. And what's wrong is that people are saying that these are illegal aliens who are coming into the United States. That's not true. By virtue of our own laws and our own signatures on international treaties, um, aliens have the right to present at the border and present an asylum claim. And if they pass the credible fear interview, it will be legally admitted to the United States wait out the disposition of their asylum case in immigration court. Okay, but what is happening now is that, number one, they're letting asylees in without a court date, so they're just in limbo, you know, forever, or they're letting them in with a court date. But their court case will take an average of five years' to disposition, but in in reality, I often see people who are waiting for their asylum case to be dispositioned for well over five years, sometimes even as much as 10 years later. Now, if somebody's been here in the United States for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, and they've established a family here, they have children here, they've, been, they've stayed here, they've not left the country for 10 years, even if they lose their asylum claim, they're not going to easily um, depart the United States when they lose their asylum claim. And so, you know, they'll figure out another way to stay in the United States. So, yes, our system is profoundly broken, and there's no good solution to it except for a congressional one, which is never going to happen because the two sides can't get together and compromise.
0: No, so, but bluntly, Susan, a lot of people making the asylum claim, I believe, are lying. And I'm using that word just to make the point plain. They're presenting, and there's no, is there any penalty for lying and saying you're trying to claim asylum? Is there any real penalty for that, for lying about it?
7: That's also fraud, you know. If you lie about an asylum claim, like if you if you are found to have made a frivolous asylum claim, you know you're barred from pursuing any kind of immigration benefit in the future. So, in some extreme, how, how often does
0: that, that happen?
7: Um, not often, but it does happen.
0: And do you think there's more? Because I, I, you know, I've seen evidence that the number of people making those claims shot up dramatically. When people figured out it was a way to get into the country, does that make sense? So
7: yeah, you can go. Any of your listeners can go to um, Syracuse University's Immigration Track System, T-R-A-C, and you can see the numbers there in black and white of, you know, how many immigration cases are ultimately approved and how many are ultimately denied. And this is the other problem in the immigration system, is that those numbers vary widely by jurisdiction and by judge. So one judge may have a 90% approval rate, and another judge may have a 10% approval rate.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I would I use the word lying, but only because I wanted to be blunt on that. But I would say it's taking advantage of a loophole if I'm going to be, you know, full, fully fair and a little mild on it. Do you think a fair number of these people are taking advantage of a loophole or trying to?
7: Yeah, I, I definitely do, because the standard that's applied at the border when you make an asylum claim is just credible fear. So you could think of that as like a maybe a 51 percent 50, a um, burden of proof versus when you ultimately get to immigration court. And let's say that that's like a 95 percent burden of proof. Um, the other problem is that a lot of lawyers will encourage their clients to file asylum claims because they know that they're going to be in the country for five, six, seven, eight years. And, you know, in that time, they're hoping that they find another way to become legal other than asylum.
0: Now, have Democrats gotten any more realistic about the immigration problems that we're facing? I see our press secretary, forgive me, our press secretary do press conferences, and she's saying our border problem is fixed. That's insane to me. Are Democrats getting any more realistic on the problem, Susan?
7: who's up for re-election is not going to be truthful about, you know, how profoundly broken the immigration system is. and I think it's just too big of an issue and it's too unwieldy of a subject with so many different, you know, um, facets of it that need to be carefully examined in order to begin to, you know, address the issues that it's just, it's just not compatible with a politician's desire to become re-elected. So I, I don't think it's just a Democrat problem. I think it's it's on both sides, um, and that unfortunately, our system of politics does not lend itself well to fix big problems like this.
0: And Jason, any last comments for Susan Pye? comments real quickly. Uh, Jason, oh, no, I appreciate your insights on the show. Yeah,. Susan, are you currently writing any place or anything like that?
7: Um. I write a little bit nowadays, but I think a lot of pe- people can look at the historical context of where we are now in on my website at strongvisa dot com.
0: Okay, great, great appearance, Susan Pye and great conversation. And always, we try not to present this in a way that's a unrealistic, but b that ignores the reality of the fact we're dealing with human beings here. So. Great parents by Susan Pie, and also Great Parents early in the show by Mark Zabala and Jason. Great job as
2: usual being co-host. Did you have fun? I did. H- were you hearing me there? Was there a problem with the microphone?
0: Yeah, you're a little, a little weak, but we'll talk about the technical stuff later, and we'll talk more about talk small cities this weekend on our Patreon show, I Dive with Jason Goodman and Lee Stranahan on Patreon. Until next time, this is a backstory.